All right. Good morning, beloved. Join me and open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John, chapter 13. John, chapter 13. Yes, today we're beginning a, a new chapter as we've been going verse by verse through this wonderful Gospel of John. And, and let me uh, start by saying that this section of Scripture we are about to enter into is really the Holy of Holies as it contains all that Christ has prepared for those who love him. The Lord Jesus Christ creates his own inner sanctuary in the upper room. And he reveals for them astonishing promises for his true and royal priesthood. And as Peter tells us, it's not just for the apostles. He writes to the church in 1 Peter chapter 2, you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. All of the vast promises that the Lord dispenses to his royal priests, the apostles, extend to every true believer. In fact, as it all comes to an end in chapter 17, verse 20, in the high priestly prayer, Jesus seals the promises and says, I do not ask for these only, meaning the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. This is for all believers, for all time, divine promises of provision, power, protection, peace, and all the eternal promises of Christ's triumph. And these are perfectly recorded by John under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in chapters 13 through 16. We are entering monumental territory in these chapters as we will be ushered into the inner sanctuary as our great high priest takes us where only the true royal priesthood can go. This section could be best described as Christ's love letter to those who love him. As the unmistakable theme that runs through the next four chapters is Christ's love for his own. So as the Lord's earthly ministry has now drawn to a close, we are on the eve of the crucifixion. This takes place with under 24 hours left to go, and Jesus seeks to reassure his closest disciples of his enduring love that he has for them, and the first expression that we see of this love is found in our verses this morning. As Jesus himself humbles himself to that of a lowly servant as he kneels down and he washes his disciples' feet. So if you have your Bibles open, let's read this text once through together, and then after we can go through each verse and see what it uh, teaches us. Today we'll be covering verses 1 through 17, but just for the context, I want to read down to verse 20 today. So John chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, this is the reading of God's living and infallible word. 
It says, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Now, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me, receives the one who sent me. Great verses. Uh, before we jump into this familiar passage, um, I think it would be good for us to, to set the context and to think about um, where we're at in John's gospel. Um, and there's a reason why John includes a scene here in chapter 13, and it's important within the bigger storyline of what he's doing. Um, last week, we compete, uh, completed the first half of John's gospel of what's typically called the book of signs. And it's called that as chapters 1 through 12 center around Jesus' public ministry through a series of signs and discourses as Jesus reveals himself to be the true Messiah and calls to himself all to believe in him. While the second half of John's gospel, chapters 13 to 21, is often referred to as the books of the book of glory. And it shifts our attention to Jesus' private ministry and to the hour of his glory. 
But before we get to his glory, before we get to his exaltation, we have to go to the cross. And before we go to the cross, we spend um, a large portion of the second half in the upper room in this farewell discourse. And as Jesus gets his disciples together for the Last Supper, sometimes referred to as the Lord's Supper, he teaches them now not so much who he is, because that's already been revealed in the first half of the gospel, but more of what it means to be a disciple, to be a follower of this person, the Lord Jesus Christ. So if the first half of the gospel is answering the question, who is Christ? The second half of the gospel answers the question, what does it mean to follow him? What does it mean to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? And a lot of the upper room discourse is answering that question. Now, why is all this important? Because, well, first of all, this is the opening scene. And it's very instructive for us in understanding what is to come. There is a sense in which when Jesus washes the disciples' feet, that he's laying down themes for us and um, trajectories and pictures that will become very significant in what Jesus is about to say to his disciples. There are hints and foreshadows within this passage of what is about to come as Jesus speaks to the disciples before going to the cross. And before we get to the most common thinking about this text, which is an example of humility and one of service, there's something else very significant that Jesus says. Um, before we get to all that, let's just work through the, the text together. And the first thing I want you to notice is Jesus' love for his own. Jesus' love for his own. Look at verse 1 and, and how he opens this chapter. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If you want to know what motivated Jesus to die for the selfish self-centered men who on the very last night before the cross were sitting around arguing about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. These men who just in a few hours, some will deny him. These men who will all but abandon him at the cross and flee. If you want to know what motivated the Lord Jesus Christ to die for them and to die for us, it is because of love. Love. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. This is grace. This is grace. It's all about grace to the undeserved, which is what salvation is. We can't earn it. We don't deserve it. And yet Christ, the perfect, sinless son of God, son of man, bore our sins on the tree and by his wounds we have been healed. It's an unbreakable love. It has no deviation in it. He will love them to the end. Now, what's that mean, having loved his own who are in the world, he loved them to the end? To the end there is this uh, teleos in the Greek. It means continually, completely, to the utmost, to the max, to the end, both in terms of capacity and eternity. He loves as much as God can love. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. For 
as long as God loves. That's how long he loves, which is to say he loves infinitely, both in capacity and in time. The NIV's paraphrase probably captures the richness of this thought the best, as it says, he now showed them the full extent of his love. Verse 1 then introduces us to this love and is the dominant theme of chapters 13, 14, 15, 16, and then is sealed in chapter 17 with the high priestly prayer. This is an astounding amount of love that he has for his own. And when he says, having loved his own, it implies having loved his own already. He's been loving his own since before they even knew him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. God showed his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So having already loved his own, nothing can change it. He loved them to the end, to the max, to, to the utterly most, completely, fully, and perfectly. How is this love measured? Having loved his own, he explains it for us in the next four chapters. And we learn rather quickly that this kind of love that Jesus is referring to isn't the same to how the world loves. It's not how we love. This isn't romantic love. This isn't a fickle love. This isn't uh, an emotional kind of love. In sharp contrast to that self-centered, self-seeking, shamelessly manipulative kind of love of the world, Christ's love is a fixed, eternal love that provides eternal salvation, eternal blessing, and eternal glory. And that's what we're going to see in the next four chapters. Are you ready, church? <laughs> this is abundance love. And let me just give you kind of a, a quick summary. It is just a glorious love, and we don't deserve it. It is gracious love. It is sovereign love. He loved us first. We love him because he first loved us. It is a redeeming love. It is love that reached out and sought us and bought us. It is sacrificial love. John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. It is a love that demanded the greatest sacrifice. It is unconditional love. It is not predicated on anything that we have done. And in full awareness of our wretchedness. It is faithful love. It is a love to the very end. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing, Romans 8. It is intercessory love. He loves us so much that he intercedes for us at all times. Ever living to make intercession for us before the throne of God so that everything he promised is delivered. It is a generous love. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. 
It is this lavish, incomprehensible love, which is eternal, infinite, and is behind all of his promises in this section. Now, this is just John's introduction to the foot washing. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come to depart of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. But John says something else here in verse 1. This was before the feast of the Passover. Now, John's gospel is the only gospel that records for us all three um, Passovers. Matthew, Mark, and Luke just record this final Passover. But in John's gospel, he lists all three for us. We have gone through all three. And it's actually used for us as a time marker. Um, and this is how we come to understand that Jesus' public ministry was probably three years. It's from the three Passover references. And in every Passover in John, something significant happens around this time of year. Now, what was the Passover feast? Well, first of all, it was a slaughterhouse. Every Israelite came from all over the known world as they made their pilgrimage back to Jerusalem for the feast. It was the most well-attended of all the three major feasts. Um, and each family brought one lamb per household or they could buy um, a lamb or a goat there. And for two days, the, the priests slaughtered them nonstop. Josephus says that in one time during this time period, over 256,000 sheep were slaughtered. Water, blood would run like water up to the kneecaps of the priests as it drained out from the temple in the city. It was a bloodbath. And this was a remembrance of God's deliverance, of course, of his people as he instructed uh, Moses and, and Aaron and to speak all the congregation and, um, who were slaves in, in Egypt. And each household was to sacrifice a, a single lamb. And then with the, the stock of a, a hyssop plant, they were to point, uh, paint um, on the, uh, the lintels and on the door um, steps as a sign. And the destroyer, um, the angel of death, he would, he would pass over delivering God's people but bringing judgment upon the firstborn in Egypt. God ordained that to be remembered each year to demonstrate that he was the deliverer. He was the deliverer through the death of an innocent lamb. It was not only to be looked back on, but it looked forward to the day when God del would deliver his people, not from Egypt and not from a, a political entity or a national entity, but God would deliver his people from their sins by the death of a sacrificial lamb. Passover lambs all throughout Israel's history became the most clear symbol of deliverance from bondage and as such were pictures and types and, and foreshadows of the Lamb of God whose sacrifice would take away the sins of the world as John the Baptist declared. So while the Passover did look back, it also looked forward to the time when the true Lamb would come or just as Abraham said to his son Isaac, God will provide for himself the Lamb offering. It is no coincidence his hour had come, and it was Passover. This is divinely orchestrated time in the heavenlies. It had to happen at Passover because he was the fulfillment of Passover. Paul calls him our Passover in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, 
has been sacrificed. God ordained it at this precise time as this would be the last divinely authorized Passover. And from this point on, there would be a new memorial. Not one recalling the, the lamb's blood sprinkled upon the lintels and the, and the doorposts, but rather the blood of the lamb poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So that's number one, Jesus' love for his own. Now, uh, before we get to the teaching of humility, as, as Jesus demonstrates this great love that he has for our own as he washes his disciples' feet, um, but at the same time, he is also teaching them something that they won't understand now, but later they will. And we see this as Jesus cleanses his own. Jesus cleanses his own. We pick the story back up there in verse 2. It says, During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Um, just a little bit of cultural um, context is needed because I think we often misunderstand this whole scene of what's going on in the upper room. Um, if you've ever seen a depiction, maybe a, a painting, um, of Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It probably looks something like this. You normally see Jesus um, kneeling down and his disciples are, are sitting there in a seat. Um, they're making eye contact with one another as Jesus is washing their feet. And that's not how at all that it would have happened. John is insistent in the text, this happened during supper, verse 2, not before. This isn't like washing your hands before you go to the table. It's while they're eating. So what it means is the disciples would have been laying on the floor, reclining in the traditional posture of how they ate their meal. Each with his left arm to support his head to prop themselves up as they were lying. Unless they're left-handed like me and they would have used their right arm. They would have used then their right arm to reach in to grab and eat. So their feet then would have been away from the table. Jesus rises from supper just as in the incarnation he rose from his place of perfect and eternal fellowship with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He lays aside his garments just as he temporarily laid aside that perfect time of exaltation with the Father in heaven in glory. He takes a towel just as he took upon himself the form of a bondservant. He tied it around his waist for he had come to serve. He pours water into a basin just as he was about to pour out his blood in order to wash away our sin. Then he washes his disciples feet just as he cleanses those that he dies for. In the humble act of service, Jesus perfectly portrays his full earthly ministry from incarnation all the way to the cross. Paul says it this way for us in Philippians chapter 2, 
5 through 9, he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and has given him the name which is above every name. This is the love of Christ, that the very king of kings humbled himself to that of a servant's. That though he was equal with God, he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, a slave. And that's exactly what Jesus does here. Now, typically, uh, feet washing in Jesus' day was um, typically reserved for servants or, or slaves. And, and for those who had means, they would hire for themselves a servant. And one of their jobs would be to the washing the feet of guests who would come over for dinner. Those who were eating the meal would be reclining, facing forward, having intimate fellowship with one another. While the servant would have been completely removed from this, sent out on the outside of the table, and he would come along and wash the visitor's feet. That's what Jesus is doing. That's what Jesus is doing. And so it's really not surprising then that Peter is taken back by this. It says in verse 6, when Jesus came to Simon Peter, he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? He, he's in disbelief that Jesus is doing this to the disciples. Now, now this interaction that begins in verse 6 is going to take us all the way down to verse 11. And in this section, I think we tend to look past this whole thing and it deserves the utmost of our attention. Notice, Peter is saying in verse 6, Lord, you can't be serious. Uh, you are not going to wash my feet. I, I can't even believe you're doing this. But notice what Jesus says in verse 7. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, Peter, but afterward, you will understand. So, Jesus is obviously talking about something here that is far beyond foot washing. He's saying, in the future, you'll come to understand the significance of what I'm doing, Peter. So there's going to be something in the future that explains what's happening right now. Well, we know Peter, and keeping with his impulsive nature, he responds in verse 8, you shall never wash my feet. <laughs> so he kind of just confirms what Jesus said. Jesus just said, what I am doing you do not understand. And Peter says, I won't let you do it. <laughs> Confirming, yeah, you don't get it, Peter. You don't get it. And usually neither do we. So Jesus makes this very pronounced declaration about what he's referring to. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Let those words sink in. You have no part with me. Now, 
we've passed over to now an exclusionary remark by the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter, if you do not let me wash you, you're excluded from any kind of relationship with me. Do you understand, Peter? That's how big of a deal Jesus has just escalated this. You will have no part with me. And Peter, who we love, just flips to the opposite extreme, and he says, okay, if that's how you're going to cast this whole thing, if this is how you're going to think about this, and Lord, not my feet only, but my hands and my head also. <laughs> yeah. And so Jesus then responds with another almost cryptic remark. He's speaking in spiritual terms, but certainly cryptic to the disciples. And he says in verse 10, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So it really is quite confusing conversation. I think we just missed the whole thing because we're just so familiar with this text. We just think it's all about watching some feet. Up, da, 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 da. Remember what I said from the beginning. Th this is placed at a very strategic point in John's gospel. This is the beginning of the second half of the book of glory. Okay? And this scene is projecting forward and laying out themes for us that are becoming very important to the second half of John's gospel. So with that noted, just think about what's coming. Is there an event in this half of the gospel that is going to uh, be a benefit for some, but not all, that is going to have a cleansing effect, and that if you don't affirm it, then you actually have no part with Jesus? The answer is yes, it would be the cross. The cross. Jesus knows where he's headed. John just told us Jesus knew that his hour to depart had come. He, knew, he knows where he's going. So as this new section opens in the upper room, and we are less than 24 hours away from the cross, John brings us into the inner sanctuary that the Lord himself creates. And in this upper room scene, it's just Jesus and his 12 disciples. And as he washes their feet, it's something as a symbol, something as a sign pointing to the cross itself. And Jesus says, I am cleaning you. And if you don't accept my cleansing work of mine, you will have no part of me. And Peter's mistake is to say, okay, well, keep on cleaning me. Clean me again and again, my hands and my head, just keep on going. And Jesus says, no, one time is enough. Once you've been made clean, you only need your feet washed. You are clean. And what Jesus is saying is the work that I will perform in order to cleanse your sins will be sufficient forever. It is finished. Once I've made you clean, it doesn't need to be repeated, Peter. We, need we don't need another cross event. We don't need another Savior. My death will be sufficient. And beloved, God has graciously justified you the moment that you put your faith in Christ Jesus. 
And once you've been forgiven, he's imputed his righteousness upon you. And it breaks my heart. The church misses this in the text. Before we ever get to the example of humility, which is coming, we, we, we need to first see the lesson that Jesus teaches us here about the sufficiency of the cross. Jesus makes clear to his disciples in this final act of love that he has for them. These men who have walked with them now for three plus years, who have come to call him the Christ, the Son of God. Where else are we going to go, Peter said? You have the words of life. Though they're still dark in a lot of their understanding, though this is still before the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, and they don't quite get the whole picture yet, they don't quite fully understand why the Messiah must die. Here, Jesus begins to lay out for them a series of teachings that Jesus says they won't understand now, but they will understand it after. Here he makes a clear teaching and sign of their need for him as the anointing sacrifice for their sin. Jesus says, you must be made clean, and I'm the only one who can do it. Your feet will get dirty. They'll get dusted up, brushing it into the world. Our feet will get dirty, but you are clean. You only need your feet to be washed. Not your, you've already been made clean. And Jesus says, if you don't want me to do this, then you actually have no part with me. And by the way, when I do it, it's done. It is finished. There's no work left to do. And so you see how glorious this episode is, apart from the example it gives us to, to live humble lives and to wash one another's feet. Now that's where we're heading, but before we get there, Jesus is saying, I'm going to do something for you guys that you don't understand right now, but it's going to come clear to you after. And it's the exclusive claim of Christ, which is really what is on display here, that he and he alone can save us from our sins. And so often this is the dividing point, isn't it? So often this is what offends the world, that he alone is the one, that he alone is the only way, that he must clean us and nobody else. And Jesus will again make this point in the very next chapter when he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. His cross is sufficient. You can't add to it, you better not subtract to it. It is Christ and Christ alone. And that's a problem for a lot of people, but not Christ. He makes no apologies. He is unashamed in saying there is only one way. There is only one truth. And there is only one life. And in me and through me, you'll find all three. Now, before we move on, we do notice that Judas, uh, Judas's name keeps getting sprinkled in throughout this chapter. He is going to be unmasked in next week's verses as he becomes, of course, a key player in the role as the betrayer. Verse 2 said the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. Um, Jesus, in his omniscience, knows 
his plan to betray him. In fact, Jesus has foreordained it. And that's why Jesus says at the end of the verse, you are clean, but not every one of you. And then in verse 11, John adds, for Jesus knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. Not all of you are clean. And even through those words, Jesus is showing us that it's one way or the other. You either accept Jesus' cleansing work on the cross or you don't. And if you don't, you're with Judas. And you're probably leaving the room right about now. That was point number two. Jesus is cleansing of his own. Let's move on to point number three. As we see Jesus' lowliness and humility towards his own. Now, you notice there that there's a paragraph break starting right there at 12, between 11 and 12. It's from here that we now move into the second scene of this episode. And this is perhaps the more familiar section that I think we just tend to go to first in our thinking about the washing of feet. We, we just jump down to this section for some reason and blow right through those, all those other verses. And you'll notice Jesus certainly changes the perspective or the angle from which um, he wants the disciples to view what just happened in the foot washing. So he gives them uh, some instruction, uh, starting there in verse 12. It says, uh, when Jesus had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So here we have instruction in the way or the path of humility. If I've done this, then you should do this also. This is a Jewish form of argument from the greater to the lesser. You would acknowledge that I am teacher and Lord, that I am above you in authority. If I'm willing to do it, should you not also? pretty straightforward lesson but there is something that we should note here we should notice that this lesson in humility comes after the lesson about cleansing and that's important Jesus doesn't do it the other way around he didn't save his teaching about the cross until after he'd given instruction for them to practice humility Jesus said if I do not wash you you will have no part with me. And once you've been cleansed, then you will be able to serve others in humility. And to get the order of those two things turned around or mixed up is to make the gravest of errors. It is to flip it into a works-based salvation. Or to put it this way, to think that you might practice a life of humility before you've been cleansed, is the utmost folly. We are unable, on our own accord, with our blackened hearts, to exercise true Christ-like humility until he has cleansed you. When he saw Isaiah's rags, they were filthy rags of work from the prophet. On our own, we are filthy. 
Sure, by world standards, we can do nice things. And there's a lot of nice people out there, we could say. But Jesus is very clear on this. And so Jesus' instruction about the fact that the disciples need to start doing this to one another rightly comes after his teaching about the fact that they must be cleansed by him through his sacrificial work on the cross. It's not the reverse order. Notice also the point doesn't apply to Judas. Judas is still there. We can assume Jesus has washed even his feet. He hasn't left the room yet. But notice what Jesus says down there in verse 18. He says, I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. And actually in the Greek, that's an I am. And you may believe that I am the I am. This again just drives us back to the need that the Lord must cleanse us. We must be saved in order to appropriate the lesson of humility rightly in the eyes of Christ. After that, the question becomes sort of simple. How do we do this? And the instruction Jesus gives really couldn't be any clearer. If I've done this, you need to do it, <laughs> right? The, the difficulty doesn't come in the interpretation of it. The difficulty comes in the application of it. How do we exercise the kind of humility that the Lord Jesus Christ did? How do we demonstrate the mind and heart of Christ? By humbling ourselves and dying to self. Each day, prayerfully, asking God to lead us in the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, peace, uh, peace patience, kindness. We need lots of patience. Goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We need more self-control. Galatians 5 goes on to say, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. We must live by the Spirit. Paul actually says, walk by the Spirit and do not gratify the desires of the flesh, for the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, for they are opposed to each other. To keep you from doing the things you want to do. Each day we must crucify the flesh. Destroy the works of our pride. And grow in areas of humility. And the answer of how we can practice humility. Is seen in the example set forth by Christ. He says in verse 15. For I have given you an example. That you also should do just as I have done to you, truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. The Gospels reveal the person and work of Christ. He came from heaven, came down out of heaven. How many times do we see that in John 6? He came down out of heaven. He is the bread of life. He left all of his glory and he comes here so low, so low. He does the work of a servant as he washes the dirt and quite honestly the filth that would have been common spilling into the streets of Jerusalem. This is the example the Lord Jesus Christ left us. A basin of water that was after the washing of their feet 
filthy, black. He humbled himself in order to take what was filth, and the Lord Jesus Christ makes it clean. I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So very easy for us to become distracted in this world, to be preoccupied with ourselves. Oh, myself, myself, my face, your face, my book, your book. The more that you, 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 you do that, the more inefficient and, and ineffective that you will be at practicing humility. Humility will truly work itself out in your life. The more to which you focus on the person of Jesus Christ. And might I press a little bit harder than just saying that. It, it, it would be worked out in your life. Uh, the more that you focus on Christ as he is presented to us in Scripture... Meaning, you don't focus on Christ as you like to think of him and create him in your own head or idea of him. You focus on Christ as he shows himself in the Bible. The great I am that I am. You set your mind to realize that Jesus was truly man and truly God, and yet Christ, who being in the form of God, did not consider it something to grasp, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Here, the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself. Just hours before he would be betrayed in the garden, unjustly judged, beaten, then crucified. Yet Christ spends his last hours humbling himself in order to teach those who would confess his name that it is, in fact, better to give than to receive. As it was God in the flesh that assumed the place of a bondservant. And it was God in the flesh who used his own clothing to wipe off the dirt and filth from his disciples' feet, and then you recognize that your place is as one from him that having him sent you out into the world. I've been sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who washed his own disciples' feet, and I go out each day representing him. For as Jesus said in verse 16, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Well, we have a very short point left here. I want to close with point number four. As we see in verse 17, Jesus' blessing for his own. Notice what it says there in verse 17. If you know these things, blessed are you if you what? Do them. And the point is simply this. <laughs> the, the fight for humility is really the fight of the Christian life. He never said that it would be easy. I think that we, the fight for humility is really one of the very battles that, uh, true battles of every Christian. I think we all struggle in this area. In fact, I, I believe that the root of almost
almost all sin is undergirded with pride. It was pride in Adam and Eve that brought on the fall. They thought that they deserved better. God was holding out on them. It's the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So it will not be easy, but Jesus promises great blessings for those who not just know this truth, but he says, blessed are you if you do them. I think sometimes we think we're blessed by our knowledge of it. He says to do them. And we're not just blessed in our serving, because if you've served before, you know you're blessed in and during and through your serving. Acts of service is, is great humility, of course, but it's the, the blessings are immediate. But even more so, you will be blessed when Jesus returns and he finds you as one who has lived a life, crucifying the flesh, serving the church, humbling yourself, and being that light of Christ we read last week in Matthew, set up high up on the hill so the world can see. So when others look and see you, it looks a lot like Christ. But that can only happen when you have been washed of your sin and you continue to fix your eyes on him. And I pray that this will be a church who is known for our humility and is known for how we have served those around them and how we love Christ to the very end. To the very end. Well, if the uh, Lord has put something on your heart this morning, um, or if you just need the prayers of the church, um, please um, come forward. We'll have the leaders down front here who would be happy to pray with you. And at this time, I want to invite you to stand as we sing the song of invitation, the King of my heart, the Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs>